Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 6. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust again aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to spend our next little while uh, reflecting on this text together from Malachi. <clears throat> Imagine one night you are out driving down a local highway, let's say. It's a peaceful night, beautiful out, full moon, good weather. And all of a sudden, some teenage punk comes up behind you, is tailgating you, and then roars past you in his, you know, tricked out w, uh, Subaru WRX or something like that, clearly speeding, driving dangerously. And as you mutter to yourself about kids these days or whatever, uh, all of a sudden in your rear view mirror, you see something. You see red and blue flashing lights. Now, if those red and blue flashing lights go by you to pull over that speeding WRX, how do you feel in that moment? Well, if you're like me, I expect you'd feel some degree of satisfaction, happiness, like, oh yeah, he's getting what he deserved. He was driving dangerously or, or speeding or whatever. But let's say for a moment... What if the flashing red and blue lights don't speed past you, instead they settle in behind you, and you are pulled over? I mean, sure, I guess you were speeding some, but what about the other guy? He was speeding more. How do you feel now as, as the cop writes you a ticket? Well, justice always feels sweet until we get justice, until, until justice is given to us. We're happy to see wrongdoing punished until our wrongdoing gets punished. See, in our text today, Israel's looking around at the nations, and they're getting, they're rubbing their hands together. Can't wait for justice. God's going to get them. They're actively calling down the Lord, saying, God, where are you? Are you going to come? Are you going to set everything right? Where are you? Gonna, are you going to get them? But what they don't realize is that if God comes to right all wrongs, if, if God shows up to punish all the evildoers, it means it's going to include them. If the red and blue lights appear in the rearview mirror of history, it will apply just as much to Israel as to all the other nations. And in our really our first taste of kind of Advent, even Christmassy themes, God speaks to the nation of Israel. He says, yes, there's going to be a time when I'm going to show up, and here's what it's going to be like, here's who's going to come before me, what's going to happen, and, and, and what's going to happen when I get there. 
So we're going to look at our text uh, together in three sections, because I love three-section sermons. That's what we're doing again today. We're going to talk about the complaint, what's Israel saying to God, what this dialogue they have with him, what's this thing about the messenger, maybe you've heard of that before, and then in the New Testament, and then there's a a longer section at the end kind of about God's arrival. But the passage open, Malachi says, hey, you've been wearying God with your words. You see that right at the top? Now, what does it mean to weary God with words? You might say, I thought we were supposed to pray about everything. I thought, you know, Ben, you've said from from before that God's not offended by questions and you should be honest and open and God's patient. Well, if you look carefully at their words, they are saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God and God delights in them. Now, are evildoers good in the sight of God? Well, no, the scriptures are clear about that. That's not true. Does God delight in people who do evil? Also, according to the scriptures, no, he he does not. Why would they say that? Because the people of Israel, at this point of history, they are looking around themselves inside the land, but more more outside the land, and they are seeing evil people prosper and succeed everywhere. Uh, This book is written as the empire of Persia is just dominating the entire known world. It's the the largest empire in history, you know, until until the Romans come along. And, And the Persians... They were not God-fearing. They were not Christian in the least. They're they're this incredibly uh, nation that did all sorts of wicked things. And the people of God are saying, hey, if you look at all the evidence, it would seem that if God is God of everything, then he is delighting in all the people doing evil because they are all prospering. You see how they could say that? And they go on in the last line of verse 17. They've They've been asking, where is the God of justice? Like as if, if God were God... If God is the God we've been told about all the way along, how is this happening? Why doesn't he show up and do something? And what the Israelites are really asking are two questions that we've asked for millennia, and we will continue to ask our great-grandchildren. We'll be asking them as well. And before I tell you what they are, I'm going to give you the questions in a second, but I also want to explain the different ways in which they can be asked. I think the way we ask our questions as mortals, as humans, has something to do with why these people are accused, why Malachi accuses them of wearying God. But the complaint of the Israelites is twofold. What about the problem of evil? And if evil is happening, then what's going on with God? Either God can't exist, or he doesn't care, or he's not strong enough, something like that. Do do you hear them? They're complaining. The wicked are succeeding. They're prospering. Persian armies, they're marching everywhere, killing everyone. And they just think to themselves, this can't be right. This can't be a world ordered by God. The the very existence of evil, the the thriving of bad, is is just bothering them. And look, the same is true. For us, for Canadians at large, this is true. We see inequity. We see the poor trampled. We see natural disasters that steal lives. And of course, much closer to home, we see little kids die in sledding accidents. Or we see cancer happening to someone that's a really good person. And we're just bothered by it. Like, the very existence of evil, the very existence of bad in our world just bothers us. And it's not just Christians. I think it's a a normal and natural response. There's something inside of us that says, it's just, this isn't right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And of course, the second question then follows closely on the first. If this evil is happening, then where is the God of justice If this evil is continuing, then God must either not exist, not care, or be insufficiently godlike. He can't stop it. That's that's what we conclude, at least. And if he is one of those things, then what's the whole point? And what I want to say to you is these questions are honest and they're important. 
And, and, and they're real, and they come up over and over. God's interventions at history's darkest hours, at least as far as we can see, have been relatively few. How many cattle trucks were halted by angels on their way to gas chambers, right? Where is the God of justice? We ask this question, and it's normal, it's understandable, but here with Malachi, something has gone wrong in the way they voice their questions, and this is what I want to say. Of course, we have these questions. The way we ask them is, is important. And I think the difference is humility. You can ask questions of and about evil in a humble way, understanding you're probably not going to be given all the answers you really want, at least not very specific answers. You can ask them humbly, or you can ask them in a much more cynical, proud, aggressive way, demanding that God explain himself to you. The Israelites were not humbly asking questions. They were basically telling God, we deserve better than this. It wasn't really prayer, it was complaint. It wasn't really questions, it was accusations. Now, now how can you know when you've crossed the line? How can you know when you, when you move from humility and still honesty and, you know, into something else? It, it's not easy. It, I mean, if you read the Psalms, you're like David or Asaph or someone else like, he is getting really aggressive with God in this psalm. <laughs> like, he sounds really complainy here. But nearly all psalms, except for one or two exceptions that I can think of, nearly all psalms have, have some note, some acknowledgement, even at the end of a long complaint, a long lament, that God is still God. A psalmist will regularly demand, like the Israelites here, where is the God of justice? How come all these evil people are thriving? But nearly always they acknowledge well, God is God and we are not. And so what I would encourage you to is to ask your questions humbly. To remember, as you ask them, that you stand before a God who is in heaven and you are not. It's almost as simple as that. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. And besides, nearly always in the scriptures, the problem of pain goes unanswered. You read through the whole book of Job, the most famous part about pain, he doesn't really get an answer. I mean, he gets an answer, but it's just not the one he's hoping for. And you can read through the epistles and all the, all the letters to the churches and like, well, it's not really covered here either. But here actually in Malachi, tucked away in this kind of obscure prophet, God actually says something. Now it's not as comprehensive as we might hope, but it is sort of an answer. Uh, uh, if, is God going to do anything? Which leads us to part two, the messenger. Where is the God of justice? That's what they're saying. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins with this word, behold, which means look or see, or even some, some, uh, some commentators will say, God is saying, here I am. Where is the God of justice the people demand? God says, look at me, and I will tell you what I will do about all the injustice, all the evil in the world. What will he do? God says, I will send my messenger. And the messenger will prepare the way before him. Now, interestingly, that word for messenger, if you remember back to when we started this series, it's, the word is Malachi, the, the name of the book. Malachi means messenger, and that's the, the Hebrew word that's being used there. Now, that word's actually used many times in the Old Testament. Most of the time, two-thirds or so, it refers to human messengers. You know, someone arriving with a message, a prophet, a priest, a, you know, a soldier, something else. Someone arrive, a human arriving with a, with a message. But about a third of the time, the word messenger is used to refer to an angelic being. And actually, normally, uh, what's referred in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord, uh, which I have lots of theories about, but that's, that's a digression for today. All this to say, when God wants to make something known to his people, when he wants to do something, he normally begins with a messenger, human or angelic. 
Now, what messenger is being referred to in this verse? Well, we've said this before in prophetic books, but it's worth repeating. Old Testament prophecies should be thought of as a mountain range when it comes to interpretation. When you drive across the prairies and you get to Calgary or you get to Edmonton or whatever and you get past those cities and the Rocky Mountains come into view, you know, at first it looks like there's just a single peak or maybe kind of like a low flat wall of peaks. But of course, as you keep driving, as you get closer, you get to the foothills, you realize there are lots of peaks. There are peaks beyond peaks. There are peaks you couldn't even see at the start. You have to get past the first set before you see other ones. And it takes hours and hours and hours to drive to to British Columbia. In the same way, we often come to prophecies in the Old Testament. You know, we read it in our Bibles and we're like, what's the meaning? And we want something simple. We want it flat. But that's just not usually the way it works. Instead, there are multiple meanings or, or layers of meaning. It can mean something short-term. It can mean something long-term. It can mean something about Jesus. It can mean something about the end times. It can mean lots of things. So when God says, I'm going to send my messenger uh, ahead to prepare the way before him, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that Malachi, the author of this book, could be that messenger. It's literally his name. I'm sending my Malachi ahead. And he's calling the people to repentance. He's preparing the way so that God will return to them. But that's not the only peak in the mountain range. Malachi 3 verse 1, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Matthew 11, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 7. And in each time Jesus is, is talking and he says, oh, the, the, the messenger that Malachi was talking about, that's John the Baptist. It, it, it's John, John was the messenger preparing the way for Jesus. And so I think both interpretations can be in view, even if, well, we have Jesus telling us it definitely means this, even if we can feel more sure about John the Baptist. But what does it mean to prepare the way? Well, you may have heard this too, but in ancient times, when kings or queens would visit outlying provinces and cities, they would send a messenger ahead, and they'd say, go make adequate preparations. Uh, Go make sure the road is is, is smooth and well-built and safe. Go make sure that the lodging places or whatever are, are adequate, you know, for, for royalty. And we can safely assume if a king or if a queen must send out a messenger ahead of them, then that place needs to be changed. You know, it needs to be bettered. It needs to, something needs to happen before the king can arrive. You know, when the British, when they go to Bal, Bal, British royalty, go to Balmoral Castle, it's already set up for them. There's not a lot of changes. It's, it's, it's their place. Just, you know, throw some fresh sheets on the bed and you're basically ready to go. You, you don't really need a messenger. But, but if you have to send a messenger, it means a lot of preparation is needed. And if we kind of return to the people's complaint, we should understand that God is saying, or they're saying, where is the God of justice? He's saying, look at me. I'm going to send a messenger. And I'm, they need to do some preparation work in you. Because you aren't ready for me to show up. You're calling out for justice. You're actually not ready for justice. You're calling out for wrongs to be made right. You you aren't ready. And when John the Baptist comes at the turn of the ages, right? What was his message? It's very Malachi-ish. Repent, change, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming coming quickly. You need to to make some changes. Because God's on the way. And that leads us to part three, the arrival. What happens after the messenger? I know we're still in verse one. We, we will get to it, I promise. It says, the Lord whom you seek, they're calling out for God, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Once the messenger has prepared the way, God will show up suddenly. That does not mean quickly or close on the heels of the messenger. It just means unexpectedly. God will show up when no one is really ready. All of a sudden, he's gonna be there. Uh, an interesting textual note. 
The word used for Lord in verse 1, it's not Yahweh, which is like the personal name of God, the the covenant-keeping God, but it's the Hebrew name Adonai, which means Most High God. It's as if Malachi is saying, like, get ready, the God of the universe is going to come. But verse 2 begins with but, which is really the first signal in this passage that the coming of the God of justice won't be exactly what the people are hoping for. Right, what did they hope for? They hoped God is going to come and pull over all the evil cars who are speeding so much faster than them. That's what they hoped for, but verse 2 says, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Those are rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. It's implied. And by the way, the word used for stand is not just like I am doing right now, standing on my feet. Uh, it's a word used for armies. To stand means to repel an invasion, to, to thwart an attack. When God is on the move, when God comes to town, uh, no one is going to get in the way. None can endure it. None can repulse it. Why? Because Malachi says he's going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What will the arrival of God feel like? What will it be like? Malachi says it's going to feel like impurities are being burned off of you and like laundry day is happening. And let's just take a moment to reflect on those images for a minute. A refiner and a purifier of silver and and gold, they work with fire and heat. Uh, They they work with extremely hot furnaces. And they they put pieces of silver or pieces of gold, little little ingots or however you say that word. They put them in a container and you put it into the furnace and, and they heat it up. And a good refiner actually sits and watches they don't go wander off and, you know, make a sandwich or whatever. They, they put it in there and they look through either a window or whatever. And, 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 they, and they stare at the metal. And slowly, as it gets heated up, impurities get burned and boiled off because of different uh, temperature or, or boiling points or whatever. And at first, the, the, the mixture is usually cloudy. But as more and more impurities are turned away, eventually, a refiner who's watching knows when it's ready because the silver or gold, when it gets purified, turns shiny. And in fact, depending on the furnace and depending on the angle and everything, uh, the silver is refined, it's ready, when the refiner can see uh, his or her own reflection in the molten silver. So the day of the Lord, what it's going to feel like, it's going to feel like impurities are being burned off. Like you're being put into a furnace and you're being transformed into something else so that you will actually reflect something different. And in a similar way, Malachi says the day of the Lord will also feel like soap and scrubbing. Not laundry day like we have now where you kind of toss it in the machine and a little magic thing goes in and it comes out clean all all the way later. But like the the old kind of laundry day with with, with scrubbing and and washboards and and, and abrasive uh, abrasive stuff. Fuller soap, it was just a natural cleanser and it was used to to lift stains and to remove dirt. But it was applied by by scrubbing, by forceful uh, intervention. You may note at this point, these images aren't terribly comforting. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> if I'm on the other end of refining and cleaning, won't that be painful? What if you're the dirt? <laughs> what, what if you have dirt? What if you have impurities? See, Malachi is saying the coming of God to his people, it's not going to feel that pleasant. Because they're dirty and they're full of impurity. They need to be made right. Something is wrong in them. Uh, I don't know if you remember the scene in A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, 
Tom Cruise is a lawyer. It probably made like um, a million people become lawyers or whatever. But, but he's needling Nicholson on the stand and he's trying to figure out if, if Nicholson gave this controversial order and, and, and Nicholson is refusing and he won't tell and he won't tell and he's all aggressive and growly or whatever. And finally, Nicholson yells at Cruise. He says, what do you want? And of course, Cruise shoots back, I want the truth. You know, he has this big moment and then Nicholson roars back at him, of course, you can't handle the truth. This, this extremely famous movie line. What's going on in our text is the people of of God are yelling at God, we want justice. And Malachi is saying, you can't handle justice. If God were to show up, if the God of justice comes to your town, you're in big trouble. You're looking around at the pagan nations and think, oh boy, they are really going to get it. It's going to be great. And God's saying to Israel, like, yes, they are. I will deal with the Persians. I'll deal with whoever else. But no one can endure the day of my coming. You're so excited for God to show up. You can't wait for the flashing lights in the rearview mirror. Those lights are coming for you. Now, Malachi says, look, afterwards, there will be this day in those verses there. There will be a royal and holy priesthood. The sons of Levi, they'll be purified. They'll be made right. They'll offer sacrifices just like in the good old days. And the sacrifices will be, will be good and right once again. But before that can happen, if you look at verse 5, there will be a judgment on sorcerers and adulterers and those who swear falsely and those who oppress hired workers, those who oppress widows and and orphans, the fatherless, and those who thrust aside or ignore the rights, that's what that thrust aside phrase means, ignore the rights of sojourners. Now that's kind of an odd list of sins. Some you're like, okay, that's normal. I I know the Bible says that. Some might be very foreign. A sorcerer refers to someone who attempts to enlist the divine or enlist uh, spirits to do their bidding, often through incantations or spells. Adulterers, those who uh, sleep with someone, have sex with someone other than their spouse. Those who swear falsely, that means lying or the breaking of an oath or a promise. Those who oppress hired workers in their wages, that refers to fraud committed by, by bosses uh, against their employees. Things like underpayment, the wrongful withholding of wages, unpaid overtime, all that kind of stuff. Oppressing widows and the fatherless, that that means exploiting those in your society who do not have rights, who do not have legal protections under the law. Thrusting aside the sojourner means that, well, in the law of God, you read it, uh, immigrants and travelers, they're often called aliens, which is kind of funny, but you know, anyone from somewhere else, they have have certain protections under the law, they're not to be uh, exploited or mistreated, Uh, but of course, they sometimes were, just like in our day, and that's what this command refers to, that, that kind of behavior. Now, a Christian, or even an Old Testament Jewish believer, they might look at this list and conclude, eh, I don't really, I don't think I'm guilty of any of these. Maybe I'm not so dirty. Maybe I'm not so full of impurities after all. Well, it's possible you've never chanted an incantation to try and force God to do what you want. But he ever prayed for something you knew was wrong? Oh, yeah, it's possible you haven't slept with another woman or man besides your spouse, but have you been desiring them, thinking about them in your heart? Have you been taking advantage of loopholes to run your business in a way that only benefits you? It takes advantage of your employees? See, see, verse 5 is saying, God is coming to examine all parts of our lives. Your public life, yep, but your private life too. The obvious parts of your life and the hidden parts of your life. The, 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 the economic parts of your life and the political parts of your life. And when God comes, no one will be able to stand the scrutiny. 
And that's important for church people like me to remember, that there are not two kinds of people in the world, uh, church people and everyone else who needs to worry when God shows up. That's not what this is saying. They're saying there's one kind of person and we have all kinds of impurity and dirtiness. It just kind of differs person to person, but everybody needs laundry day. Perhaps this list in verse five to six doesn't describe you. That's possible. But none of us is ready for the day of the Lord. Well, where does this passage leave us? Well, questions linger here. Just a quick review and then I'll try to show you the path. The people are saying... We have this problem with evil. We're sick of it. We want God to show up and deal with it. So God responds, okay, I'll send my messenger. Uh, he'll make things ready. When, when, he, when it's all ready, I will show up and I'll swiftly judge all sin and no one will be able to stand. <laughs> like, oh, Merry Christmas. Okay, so we're, we're, we're left wondering then. Here's what we're left wondering. So when God shows up, are we just obliterated? Are we destroyed in this judgment of sin? Well, I want to give you a couple of verses to think about. Many of you are familiar with John 3.16, maybe the most famous. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but inherit eternal life. But John 3.17, the next verse, not, not quite as famous. God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now hold that, hold that just in your head for a moment. When John the Baptist comes, Matthew 3 you know what he says about the one coming after him? He's, John says, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming, he will baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In short, Jesus, the one who's coming after me, he will be the refiner. He will put you in the furnace. Why? Not to destroy you, but to make you holy and pure. See, what you can't lose in this text is that God, when he shows up in judgment for sin, he desires not your destruction, but your purification. He wants you in some, some strange way to embrace the soap and embrace the fire for what it will clean out of your life. But what makes that process possible is that justice still has to be administered. We can't ignore justice simply because we are being purified. I mean, imagine if on the way out of the service day, you go out to the parking lot, someone has hit your car, they've torn off the bumper, it needs thousands of dollars in repairs, and, and they are standing there, but they're being very difficult, it's not my fault, you parked wrongly, whatever. You end up in small claims court. Now, when you arrive at small claims court, the other party, they're, they're, they've changed their mind, they're very contrite and apologetic. And the judge looks at you and says, hey, look, they feel really bad about it. Uh, maybe we should just kind of call it a day. I don't, we, we, we don't want to make them feel any worse. And you're like, okay, I'm sympathetic. Sorry, sorry you feel so bad about it. But like, my car is still broken. <laughs> like, the, I, I still don't have a bumper. Justice hasn't been done. Like, I'm glad they're sorry, but the car needs to be fixed. When Jesus comes to purify, when he comes to refine us, Understand that justice still needs to be done. You can't skip justice. We want justice not realizing that Jesus will pay for all the impurity, all the dirtiness, all that we've done wrong. He came not to destroy, but to purify. The only way that's possible is by him paying the cost himself, which he does. Now, one other quick thought. We'll finish with this. The message of the God of justice showing up to make a holy and pure people for himself, to purify and not destroy, this message is extremely important to all of us, all of you who deal with shame. 
Because the difference between guilt and shame is this. Some people feel guilty and they say, I've done bad things, I feel guilty about it. That's not shame. Shame says, I've done bad things, but I'm actually a bad person. Shame believes there's something that's wrong with me. And if you are a person who struggles with shame, you'll know the spiral you can go down. When you do one thing wrong, you know it quickly moves from this mistake or a sin or whatever it was to maybe internal name calling, a feeling of worthlessness, the desire to give up. And this message is extremely important for you. Jesus comes not to condemn you, not to jam you further down a hole, but to purify you. He died not so you could just keep trying harder in your life, but so that you can be counted as a saint. He, that's what he calls the Corinthians. It's like the worst church in the New Testament. He's like, you saints. Why? Not because of them, but because of what Christ did for them. Of course you need ongoing scrubbing and purifying. Of course you do. Of course you can't stand up to his coming. But Jesus died so you could be clean on the inside. So you could be right. And that's a truth you can lean into when your heart condemns you. So listen to me. Hear the good news. The God of justice, he's shown up. He was announced by John the Baptist, but that same God of justice died to pay the debt of sin that we might become his pure and holy people. Let's pray.